Welcome to the podcast, everyone. My name is Lucas Pesa. This is Pardon My Ignorance, a podcast to help you think a little bit differently about complex social, political, and business topics. And today we're going to be talking about a really hot and complicated issue. We're going to be talking about the gender wage gap, and we'll go into detail about all of the complicated reasons as to why the gender wage gap exists. And to help me better understand this topic, I'm joined today by Dr. Kirsten Cornelson of the University of Notre Dame. Kirsten is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Notre Dame, and she has a PhD and a master's in economics from the University of Toronto, as well as a BA in economics and international relations from Mount Allison University. Prior to completing her PhD, Kirsten worked as an economist at the Royal Bank of Canada, and her research focuses on the sources of race and gender inequality in economic outcomes. We start the conversation by defining the actual statistics that illustrate the gender wage gap to clarify exactly what they include and what they mean. And after that, we discuss all of the issues that contribute uh, to the gender wage gap from discrimination, the career choices based on labor preferences, how different skill types contribute to the way that men and women select different career paths, how the wage gap actually varies in different industries, and um, a pretty big one, how social and cultural and political trends contribute to the way men and women select their careers. There's a lot of great information in the conversation, so make sure you stick around for the entire episode. Hi, Kirsten. Welcome to the program. Great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Kirsten, pardon my ignorance, but when it comes to the the gender wage gap, I don't have as much knowledge about it as... Uh, as I'd like to, that's for sure. So one thing I wanted to start us off with um, is in regards to, I mean, obviously there's a lot of research that's done that pertains to the gender wage gap, and particularly the number that I come across um, very frequently is that um, women in the workforce will earn 79 cents for every dollar that a male uh, earns in the workforce. So I, I guess my first question is, how is that number actually calculated? So those numbers are typically calculated by uh, through household survey data. Uh, so in the United States, the typical survey is the uh, CPS, uh, which takes a survey of workers uh, every month and asks them questions about, uh, you know, how much, whether they're working, how much they're working, um, those sorts of things. Uh, and once a year, they do a more detailed questionnaire where they also ask workers about their earnings. And so from that survey, you can... Um, look at men and women who are in the workforce. Um, typically, we look at full-time, full-year workers. Uh, we look at what their annual salaries are. And just from a simple comparison of what men are earning and what women are earning, you can show that women earn about 79% of what uh, a typical male worker earns. So when you add up the wages of both men and women, what is included in that number? So that calculation uh, is is quite broad. It's really just a raw comparison of how much uh, female workers are earning. Um, and so it includes, you know, as I mentioned, we usually look at full-time, full-year workers. Uh, as it turns out, the numbers aren't that different. If you look at part-time workers or if you compare hourly wages, for example, it's still kind of in the 76 to 80 cents range. Um, so, the, you know, it's, this is just a really simple calculation that people do, but it's uh, it's fairly robust to kind of how you cut the data uh, along those those dimensions. And when it comes to that 79 cents on the dollar figure, now that we've addressed what it does include, what are some things that it does not include? 
Yeah, so it, what, it's not, what that number is not doing is comparing men and women who are doing the same job for the same hours kind of on the same schedule, right? So this is, you know, th that number encompasses the fact that, you know, women may be working in different jobs than men. Uh, it does, you know, we do try to take into account how many hours people are working. Um, you know, the raw number doesn't take that into account, but if you do, say, an hourly wage calculation, we would be correcting for that. Uh, but one thing it can't really take into account is unreported hours, right? So if you ask people how often they work, they'll typically tell you something like 40 hours a week. Um, you know, it's just kind of the, the number that's at the top of everyone's mind when you ask them that. Uh, but it's entirely possible that people aren't reporting those hours accurately, right, that maybe men are staying at the office a couple hours later each night and, and not reporting that. Um, so we can't take into account any differences in how much men and women are working, um, you know, unless they tell us about them. It's also not taking into account any differences in education between men and women or any differences in labor market experience, right? And experience there is going to be the big one. Uh, women typically are, you know, are much more likely to take some time off when they have children, um, and so they tend to have a bit less uh, labor market experience than comparable men. Yeah, and you know certainly uh, those are also those are two very specific issues when you refer to um, you know the differences in in education and and sort of um, labor market experience. Um, those are uh, two areas that I'm curious to learn you know about as we sort of move forward in the conversation. So I'm glad you brought that up because you know I'll definitely want to bring that up again. Um, you know, so now that we've sort of established how that number is calculated, pretty much what is included when people when uh, research is done to sort of calculate you know that 79 cents on the dollar figure um, you know what it also does not take into account whether it's education labor market experience um, you know the the number of hours being worked the actual chosen profession um, one thing in particular you mentioned is the concept of full-time work how is full-time work defined uh, so in this context full-time work is defined as working more than 35 hours a week uh, and if we're also in the cases where we're also restricting to full year workers, that's usually workers who work more than 26 weeks out of the year, right? So these are workers who have uh, what we call strong labor market attachment. They're not moving in and out of work. They tend to, uh, you know, they're workers who kind of continue to work over large portions of the year. When it comes to part-time work now, because this is one thing that I was curious uh, to learn about because, you know, full-time and part-time obviously are two different things in terms of the uh, education sometimes that's required and the time commitment that's obviously required. Part-time work, in my experience, doesn't have as much, it's not as defined by um, hour. Sometimes it's defined, you know, simply by wage, you know, there, if, whether it's part-time workers in certain industries will earn minimum wage versus a higher wage. So how is how does the concept of part-time work come into play? So uh, as it turns out, when you include part-time workers in this calculation, it doesn't actually change much. So that implies that the wage gap is pretty similar for part-time workers, uh, you know, as it is in, in the full-time worker calculation. So it seems like, uh, you know, including part-time workers does, isn't going to influence that calculation very much. So in terms of, now that we've sort of established the, the context around how people uh, in the field come to uh, the 79 cents on the dollar figure and the sort of nuances around that. Um, you, you briefly mentioned uh, differences in education in terms of the, the impact that it has um, uh, in, in the actual gender wage gap. So one, one thing I'm curious to learn about is because like I, when I was in university, um, what I noticed in the humanities at least is that there were more women not only in 
classes with me, but what I started to notice as the gen uh, the um, the second and third years who were coming in after I was graduating, there were even it seemed to be to me at least that there were even more uh, women going into the humanities program. So as more women are working their way into university system, as more women are are, are populating you know certain um, university programs or college programs. It would seem to me, at least, that the the gap would close a little bit as more women graduate, more women move into those positions. So, just to sort of get your take on this side of the conversation, to to sort of further contextualize before we get into the more specifics of you know the gender wage gap and specifically what causes it, how many men versus women are actually enrolled in post secondary education? So women have started uh, to surpass men in terms of post-secondary completion. Uh, So among the 25 to 34-year-old cohort in 2017, so people who have graduated relatively recently, uh, women made up about 55% of bachelor's degrees. So they're slightly overrepresented uh, compared to their share in the population. Okay. And when it comes to how you sort of break that down by... Um, subject matter or by discipline, does that number vary from, say, the humanities to commerce to the sciences, et cetera? Yes, it varies hugely. Uh, so in some programs that uh, are more de- male-dominated, uh, so that's things like math or engineering or computer science, uh, women's proportion can be as low as about 22-23%. Uh, there are other programs that tend to be more female-dominated. Uh, those include things like public policy and social work um, Health sciences is one area of science where women are overrepresented. Uh, And in those areas, the share of women can be as high as about 80%. Okay, so um, when it comes to education, obviously it does vary. And, you know, whether it's, um, you know, more men taking, you know, being enrolled in certain programs versus women being in others. From a sort of, as we sort of move forward in this particular conversation, one thing I'll be curious to, to discuss is, you know, the degree to which you know, the sort of separation within university or college and how that impacts career decisions and further influences the wage gap later on. But, um, you know, as a, as a, I guess, as a, a sort of lower hanging fruit, at least for now, uh, you know, when it comes to more women being enrolled in certain programs and, and more men and men being um, more populated in other academic disciplines, how, when it comes to actual career decisions, from a decision standpoint, what are the careers that men will typically choose versus and how what are the, are the typical careers that women will sometimes choose based on your assertions? Yeah, so the differences that we see in men and women's educational choices are definitely reflected in their uh, occupational choices as well. So you see an over uh, abundance of men in jobs that are in the science, technologies, engineering and math fields, what we refer to as STEM fields. Uh, and you tend to see women uh, concentrated in more what we call the caring professions, so things like teaching and nursing. Uh, there are other differences as well, um, but those are kind of the big ones that uh, really seem to to reflect these early educational choices. Yeah, and um, you know, one thing, uh, just one name that I came across actually as I was going through my own sort of uh, research was um, Claudia Golden, and um, I understand that you know she's done some interesting research around uh, you know whether it's academic discipline or career disciplines that are, are typically populated by men or women. So um, have you come across any of her research in, in, your, in the field? 
Yes, and uh, Dr. Golden has actually a really interesting paper that came out recently that looks at another dimension um, by which men and women are distinguished in their occupational choices. Uh, and that has to do with the time demands of the jobs. And so what she highlighted is that uh, men disproportionately select into jobs where very, very long hours are rewarded. Right, so some jobs it's very easy to break them down into small pieces, right? And so she points out that pharmacists, for example, you can have one person working an 80-hour week or two people working a 40-hour week, uh, and they're no more or less productive when you split it in that way. And so basically every hour gets paid the same in pharmacy, and that makes it really easy to break the job down into as many pieces as you want. When you're a CEO, however, it's really not easy to break that job down. You kind of need one person who's running the ship, who knows everything, who has all the relationships. And so CEOs, if you plot out their wages against how many hours they work, it's very nonlinear, right? CEO, CEOs who work you know, really long hours get paid much more than CEOs who only work normally long hours. And so those jobs in particular can be very difficult for women to select into uh, because typically, you know, women bear a larger burden of household responsibilities. Uh, you know, there seems to be some element that they avoid jobs with very long hours and that this uh, disproportionately harms them when it comes to wages and salaries. How much do you think, if any, um, do you think bio uh, biological differences between men and women, like are there any inherent differences between the two that play any role in which the way they uh, pick and choose their career paths? You know, that's a, it's a very difficult question to answer, um, and it's not really something that economists uh, tend to concern themselves with much. Uh, so, you know, it's not my area of expertise. Uh, but my understanding is that there is some good evidence of some biological differences uh, between men and women along dimensions that are potentially relevant for career choice. Uh, so one of my areas of expertise is in um, the role of things like spatial skills in driving women's selection into STEM jobs. Uh, and in the realm of spatial skills, we do have some evidence that uh, prenatal exposure to testosterone, which typically is much higher for uh, male babies, uh, does play a role in uh, the development of spatial awareness, right? And we know this uh, both from animal experiments uh, and from some, you know, historical episodes with humans where babies have been exposed to testosterone in unusual amounts in utero. Uh, so, for example, in the 1960s, there were um, these drugs that they would give to women who were at risk of miscarriage, that, and some of those drugs uh, provided estrogens and some of those drugs provided testosterones uh, in the fetal environment. Uh, and the provision of testosterone does seem to uh, increase spatial awareness in those babies. So there is good evidence that there's some biological basis for, these, uh, for some of these differences. Uh, having said that, there's also good evidence that society and culture shape these differences as well, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get into that a bit more later on. Well, actually, yeah, that was actually the next uh, question that I was going to ask because, um, you know, to, to your point, I mean, I, I th based on the sort of reading that I've done, you know, there's, um, you know, biology plays a little bit of, I didn't know it played a role to the extent that you just mentioned where, you know, when, if, if young, if babies are, are given certain, um, whether it's hormones or whatever the case may be, it develops a certain part of their, um, being that, you know, might, help that might enable them to a certain type of a skill set and then later in life that's that that particular skill set might direct them to um you know one career or the other so um when it comes to biology you know i i you know i'm 
that was sort of what I was curious to learn about. Does it have any impact? But to your point about, you know, the sort of subtle social pressures, the sort of subtle um, expectations that are placed on men versus women to gear themselves towards certain roles. I mean, like I know, for example, I used to work in an industry where, um, you know, uh, whether in marketing, public relations, that kind of thing. And those businesses you know, are, you know, obviously designed to provide needs to their clients. And if their clients are trying to sell a a product of some kind, or if their clients are trying to, um, you know, convince their consumers to do something or to buy something, the role of those departments is typically to communicate to stakeholders in a way that influences their thinking so that they either feel a certain way and then they might need to, they feel like they need that product or they are, you know, by hearing that particular marketing message, they'll feel like, you know, that particular product will enhance their lives somehow. So um, that my, in my experience working in those sorts of fields and in, in previously in my career, that's definitely something that I've noticed is not just when it comes to, you know, let's just say guiding people along when it comes to, you know, influencing them uh, to sort of compartmentalize themselves into gender roles specifically. But when it comes to even something like, you know, what, what, what pair of shoes that you should buy if you're a basketball player, well, you should buy the shoes that, you know, LeBron James wears or that Kevin Durant wears, because, well, if you want to play like them, then you have to, you know, wear their shoes. And that's kind of the basis by which you know, companies will try to sell their product is by convincing people that, um, if you want to, you know, do something or achieve something, then you have to uh, buy a product or, or assign yourself to a certain type of academic discipline or whatever the case may be. I mean, what are your sort of general thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, we definitely send different messages to boys and girls. We have different expectations for them. We encourage different types of behavior. Uh, there's a really interesting study uh, by I believe it's uh, Benjamin Sands or Benjamin Levy and Edith Sands. I may have those names wrong, uh, but they were able to uh, show how these types of expectations can influence academic achievement in children in Israel. Now, what's really interesting about Israel is that all children write standardized tests at the national level, and those tests are blind marked, right? So they take their name, they take the kids' names off the tests before they mark them, and that means that gender bias can't enter into the marking of the these national exams. And what they do is they take these national performance on these national exams and they compare that to teachers' markings of the same children, right? And from that, you can get a measure of how biased a teacher is, right? So maybe in a particular class, the boys and girls perform equally on the national standardized tests, but the teacher marks them very differently, you know, in their math exams that are, that are taken in school, right? So that provides us a measure of how much teachers' uh, gender biases are entering into their classroom behavior. Now, what this study did was it constructed this measure of teacher bias, and then it followed up on the performance of children who were in those classes once they were older, right? So these were kids who were in uh, sixth grade, and then they looked at how they performed later on in high school uh, in different subjects. And what they showed is that teachers who had more of a gender bias towards boys in particular subjects, right, in particular in math, uh, that those girls, the girls who were in those classrooms tended to do less well Uh, on math in high school, and that the boys who were in those classrooms tended to do better, right? And so they estimate that moving from a neutral teacher to one of the most biased teachers in their sample uh, would have increased the gender gap by about half a standard deviation in math scores. Now, to put that in perspective, that's about the size of the entire racial gap in test scores in the United States, right? So that's actually a really big effect of moving uh, from a neutral teacher to a gender-biased one. So it does seem like these 
kind of expectations we have, these different expectations of boys and girls can really influence uh, their, how those abilities develop uh, and their later performance in those domains and decisions to pursue those domains as, you know, in education and in their careers. Yeah. And so just so I'm clear on this, basically what you're saying is if somebody is, let's say there's a young girl who's in a uh, specific uh, math class or a science class and the teacher has, uh, you know, a gender bias geared towards uh, the, the boys as opposed to the girls. So essentially, are you just so I'm clear, do you mean that if that gender bias creeps into the way in which they grade the young girls versus the young boys, then it will actually have an effect to where the young girls will be less likely to perform well in those subjects later on in life? Yeah, that's exactly it. Right, and remember that we're in some sense controlling for how well these girls performed on the standardized tests. We're not looking at girls who did poorly on the standardized tests. We're looking at girls who were undermarked relative to their male counterparts. And sort of one other question that I had, just because obviously you mentioned the impact that it can have if somebody has, you know, if somebody feels, I guess, maybe neglects the wrong word, but let's just use it for the lack of a better one for now. Like, let's just say there's a, uh, you know, young student who is not as held as much of a priority in their education as a boy, for example. Um, so obviously you mentioned that that sort of lack of attention can negatively impact uh, their development later on. Is, does also the flip side work where if a, you know, a young girl or even a, a, you know, a, a girl who's a bit more mature or a young lady, um, if they are given a position where they see a female mentor at a young age, or if they see a female mentor in, um, let's just go to the STEM fields, for example, you mentioned that a little bit earlier. Um, if let's say a young girl in science or math is given a, a female mentor in those classes at a young age, just in the same way that you sort of neglect in those subjects can negatively affect their development later in their lives, can a positive impact or a positive uh, sense of attention at a young age in those subjects help accelerate their development later in life in those subjects? Yeah, it definitely seems like having female mentors or role models uh, can make a big difference in girls' decisions to select into these fields. Uh, there's a neat study that was done at the U.S. Air Force Academy where um, so this is a, a university-type environment for the Air Force. And in this environment, everyone has to take the same set of first-year classes, which includes some science classes. Uh, but the nice thing is that students are randomized to teachers, right? And because they're randomly assigned, we can look at the causal effect of having a female science teacher versus a male science teacher on girls' later decisions to pursue STEM fields. Uh, and what this study showed is that having a female uh, professor in your first-year science class substantially increased your uh, decision to take more STEM classes later on uh, and to graduate with a STEM degree. And that effect was concentrated among girls who uh, came into the program with relatively good math uh, SAT scores, right? So these are girls who had the ability to pursue science and math uh, degrees. Uh, and for them, seeing a female professor had a very substantial impact on the chances that they would pursue a STEM degree. It was actually an increase of about 25 percentage points, which is enormous. So we've talked a lot so far about setting, you know, uh, the foundation of the conversation. So understanding, you know, from an educational standpoint, you know, uh, how many women versus men are, in, are actually in, uh, being educated uh, in post-secondary institutions, where the sort of 79 cents on the dollar figure comes from. Um, so we've talked about, uh, you know, the uh, a, a number of different sort of uh, areas in that regard. 
Um, one thing, so now I, I sort of want to get into uh, a bit more um, specifics. Now that we've sort of set the context of the conversation of the gender wage gap, and we've sort of laid out at least a few of many areas that, you know, can set a good foundation for understanding why it exists and, and the sort of repercussions it can have later on in uh, the development of individuals and, and later on in uh, the economy, that kind of thing. Um, when it comes to actually why the gender gap exists at a later stage. Are there any sort of um, categories that you could place in terms of defining, just so we can, for the sake of sort of narrowing down the conversation and, and keeping things structured, are there any, is there a number of categories that we can sort of place in like buckets of topics of conversation we can place um, or construct so that we can move forward with the conversation in terms of understanding how um, the, the gender gap is caused moving forward? Sure. Well, I'd say that economists have really focused on three different classes of explanations. Okay. Uh, so the first is the possibility that men and women may have different abilities or preferences when they move into the labor market, right? So they may be um, making different choices because they uh, they have different skills, uh, different preferences coming in into that decision. Uh, the second class of discriminations has to do with uh, discrimination, right? So it's possible that uh, women are facing discrimination in the labor market, and that's why they're making different decisions. Uh, and finally, a third class of explanations has to do with uh, the family concerns, right? And so the role of uh, women's additional family burdens in uh, driving their labor market decisions. Okay. So at least to start off in, as we move forward here, let's start with uh, the sort of preferences and abilities uh, component that you brought up. Um, what in your estimation, what are some examples of skills or preferences um, that you think differ between men and women? So psychologists have documented uh, a lot of different uh, different kinds of skills and preferences that differ across men and women. Um, that's really more, you know, establishing these differences is really more in the psychology domain. Uh, some of them that I think are uh, more important for things like occupational selection uh, would be things like the desire for competition, right? So there's work showing that uh, men seem to uh, Prefer, comp prefer competitive environments relative to women. They're more likely to select into them uh, in experimental settings. Okay. Uh, I've already mentioned uh, spatial skills, spatial abilities. Um, at the time people enter the labor market, there's actually quite a large gap in men and women's abilities uh, to perceive objects and how they are to kind of visualize objects and how they move through space, uh, which can influence selection into things like STEM careers. Uh, there are differences in how men and women relate to people Right. Um, so if you ask men and women about the types of jobs that they like or the types of activities that they like to do, men are more likely to indicate that they like working with things or objects. Women are more likely to indicate that they like working with people. Okay. Um, and so there are, you know, across a wide variety of dimensions, there are some differences in, between men and women at the time that they make labor market decisions that you might think influence their occupational choices. Okay, and how important would you say all of these factors are in explaining the sort of occupational differences? So as it turns out, they're pretty important. Um, so I have some work with a co-author, Michael Baker, uh, where we actually, we attempt to answer exactly that question. Uh, so what we do is we compiled a, a list of different kinds of skills where psychologists have documented uh, male-female differences uh, in these skills and that we think might influence job selection. And so those include the things I just mentioned, like competitiveness and spatial ability. Uh, we also really drill down. We go down to even things like color vision, 
um, finger dexterity, right? Things that, um, you know, are relevant for certain performance in certain occupations and where we know that there are uh, big male-female differences. And what we do is we take ratings of how much jobs rely on those skills from the Dictionary of Occupational Titles, which is a database that the U.S. government put together uh, that basically for each occupation provides a list of what skills are needed to perform well in that occupation. Uh, and we look at which skill demands predict male occupational segregation, right? So what, what, kind, what are the characteristics of jobs that tend to have a lot of men in them versus jobs that tend to have a lot of women in them? Right. And what we show is that uh, male selection into job lines up really closely with the skills that are male advantaged. Uh, and similarly, that jobs that are very female tend to rely more on skills that where women are advantaged. Uh, and that if you eliminated that type of selection on those skills, right, if, if men didn't select into male, you know, kind of the male skill advantage jobs in that way, that occupational segregation would fall by about 40%, right? So uh, it seems like uh, selection on these bases seems to be quantitatively important. Got it. Okay. So uh, just so l let me clarify that. So basically what you're saying is if whatever it is that influences people, men or women to choose certain career paths, whether it's, you know, culture, whether it's, you know, um, you know, the, the messaging that we see every day on the internet or what, you know, uh, what different businesses tell us we should focus on in terms of prioritizing or spending our money, whatever the case may be, whatever social cultural things that are at play that influence the decisions that especially young people make when it comes to choosing careers, whatever that thing is, if that thing was eliminated, then the actual segregation or, or the, the segregation in the workforce would decrease by 40%. So we don't know whether, you know, completely eliminating these differences between men and women would do that. What we know is that if men and women stopped choosing jobs that had these particular profiles. Got it. Yeah. Right. Then, uh, and you know, and we can't really say for sure what's causing men and women to choose these different profiles. Yeah. We have evidence from psychology that there are you know, either ability differences or preference differences between men and women along exactly these dimensions. Um, but whatever it is that's causing men and women to choose their jobs in this way seems to be pretty important. And it seems like the number of things that actually influence the way people make these decisions are sort of infinite. Like if you, even if you consider the amount of time people spend on the internet or, or looking up, you know, uh, spending, whether it's social media sites, or whatever the case may be, all of these websites are full of messages, images, uh, you know, very sort of subliminal messages that, you know, you should either conduct yourself a certain way, uh, you know, whether it, whether you're a, a man, this is how you should conduct yourself towards women or women, this is how you should conduct yourselves towards men, you know, women, you should sort of gravitate towards these sorts of qualities, men, you shouldn't gravitate towards these. So it seems to me like there's an infinite number of things that are at play that can really influence all of these sorts of things, including what career path to take. Um, would you sort of, do you have a take on that? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And that's what makes uh, research in this area so difficult in some sense is trying to disentangle all of those different possible explanations is, is a really difficult thing. And one, one thing you also mentioned, uh, you know, in, in, the, in what you were saying just now is how um, spatial ability, you know, the sort of spatial abilities and the differences and such between men and women obviously have a difference in the, the degree to which um, they, they choose different careers, because if you know, one a group of people has, uh, you know, spatial abilities that are better than others, then those people will gear themselves towards those sorts of uh, careers. Um, what are some careers that you think, it, when it comes to 
people who are inclined in their spatial ability. What what are the sort of general careers that you see those people going into? So those careers really uh, are present both at the top and bottom, I would say, of the wage distribution. So at the top, you've got jobs like engineering uh, or the physical sciences uh, that really do require a great degree of spatial ability and that are very, very highly paid. Uh, at the lower end of the wage distribution, you've got things like construction or trucking, uh, you know, anything where you're working with physical objects or where you have to kind of move yourself through space. Uh, those types of jobs are also going to rely on spatial ability. And those are some of the most male-dominated jobs uh, in the economy. You know, in that study I just mentioned, uh, spatial skills alone accounted for about or not spatial skills, the spatial demands of jobs on it, on their own accounted for about 10 percentage points of that 40% that I mentioned. So if you just shut down men's tendency to select into more spatial jobs, you would see occupational segregation fall by about 10%. Uh, and incidentally, if you did that, um, if you kind of eliminated segregation that was based on spatial demands, you would see women's relative wages rising, right? If women selected into jobs that were more spatial, their wages would rise. Got it. And the sort of high-risk jobs uh, at least are sort of more populated by men. Yeah, that's right. So in that study, we also included measures of uh, different kinds of risk within an occupation. So we had, uh, for example, uh, we included uh, the occupation's mortality rate, which captures the degree of physical risk in a job. Um, and certainly men do select into more physically risky jobs. Um, as it turns out, that particular factor is not driving a lot of occupational segregation, simply because most jobs in the U.S. are not hugely physically risky anymore. Um, but we also included a measure of how competitive the job was, and that turned out to be very important in predicting uh, occupational segregation to some extent, but also wages, right? So the competitive jobs, the jobs that score high on that, that ranking tend to be very highly paid, um, and they also tend to be relatively male-dominated. Got it. Okay. And so one thing you mentioned was, you know, if... Um, women, if if the sort of, if sort of, whether it's STEM fields or whether it's these sorts of jobs that we were just talking about, um, if more women were in those roles uh, were, or in those careers, um, you know, the sort of wage gap would, uh, would the, the gap would basically close essentially. So are you, do you believe that based on your research and assertions that, um, you know, the wage gap is a bit closer uh, or, or there's less of it, I guess, is maybe a better way of phrasing it, in fields like the STEM fields or in, you know, uh, whether it's finance or anything like that? Uh, yeah, so definitely um, researchers, one of the reasons we focus on things like STEM fields is that within STEM fields, women, the wage gap is quite small. Like women within STEM fields tend to earn about as much as their similarly qualified male counterparts. Uh, STEM jobs are also relatively highly paid. And so if you were able to induce more women to join those types of careers, the wage gap would fall. Now, in terms of the general importance of occupational selection uh, in causing the wage gap to decline, um, what we can do is we can compare uh, the wage gap within, uh, between men and women who are working in the same occupation to the overall wage gap. Uh, and what you can show is that within the same occupation, uh, women earn about 91 cents on the dollar uh, to men who are in the same occupation. Right, so just that's within the same occupation and industry, actually, I should say. Uh, and so occupation and industry alone account for about 50% of the existing wage gap. 
so essentially in those fields the wage the wage gap is you know it's closer and there isn't as much of a wage gap between men and women in those fields uh, whether it's the stem fields or whatever but um, obviously we're not going to be totally ignorant to the fact that you know discrimination does exist in the workplace and that does also play a role in the wage gap and that's yeah. something that and i mean the thing is even if you're thinking about you know occupational selection explaining 50% of the wage gap it's important to note that discrimination can affect occupational selection itself Right? If women perceive that there's, they're going to be discriminated against in certain fields, they may choose not to enter those fields. And so I think just looking at, you know, saying that when you compare men and women in the same occupation, the wage gap is lower, that doesn't necessarily rule out a big role for discrimination. Exactly. And that's something, yeah, like we're going to get into that uh, in just a little bit because that's a huge area that I have a, I, I, essentially one of the main curiosities that I have is, you know, the the overall role that, um, discrimination plays in the gender wage gap versus how much of it is, you know, because of all of the other factors that are at play. Because I feel like there's a tendency to sort of simplify these conversations when it comes to it, particularly the gender wage gap in, in the sense that, you know, there are, it's such a big topic and there are so many things that contribute to it that to sort of uh, say that it's because of the decisions people make or it's because of, you know, educational uh, differences. I mean, those are all par part and parcel, but the actual conversation of why this gap exists, why it still exists, even in this day and age, it's it's so big and so intricate and it's a spider web and it's sticky and there's so many things to consider that, um, you know, that's one of the m main reasons that I, you know, wanted to have this conversation is because there are so many layers to this and you know i want to make sure that we cover as much of it as possible um one thing that you also mentioned in so we've talked about preferences and ability we've talked about spatial abilities and how in certain fields uh, the wage gap is a bit closer and and you know the sort of how spatial abilities can influence people to choose certain careers one thing you also mentioned was the role of uh, people skills uh, and how that how that actually contributes, but maybe not so much in a negative way when it comes to closing the wage gap. Because, I mean, I know in so I work in I've worked in a number of fields that are very sort of people skill oriented, and as there have been many social developments, whether it's you know the rise of you know social media to assist in marketing campaigns, or you know the ability for people to have more cognitive flexibility when it comes to negotiating or, or having emotional intelligence. Like there are so many new uh, sort of assets that companies look for that organizations need in order to be successful. So, um, what's your sort of take on the sort of people skill component of the conversation in the sense that you know these people skills that you know. I mean, I would assume statistically, at least women are, are strong with, um, there's more demand for those skills. So I would assume that having people skills would sort of help close the gender wage gap. I mean, what's your take on that? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, so people skills are increasingly rewarded in the economy uh, that, you know, that has to do with uh, technological change. There's uh, some really important work by David Otter and co-authors that shows how the skill profile of jobs in the economy has been changing, have been changing, and uh, increasingly people skills are, you know, important and valued. And women do tend to select into jobs where those uh, people skills are, are required, right? And so there is work showing that uh, the increasing demand for people skills over time has helped to explain some of the decline in the gender wage gap uh, over the past 30 or 40 years. Got it. Yeah. And there's, and not only the, the fact that people skills are in higher demand in these, in these days, but I also feel like there's so many 
almost new industries that are being created because of all of these sort of social and cultural uh, intersections in, in business and in, uh, you know, the, the intersection between society and business. There are so many almost new industries and new services that are being provided that these people skills are sort of required and that cognitive flexibility is required in order to help your organization stay agile and stay flexible and stay, you know, uh, agile enough to, you know, face all of the sort of market shifts that, that can influence the way, um, you know, industries are, are, are changing and that kind of thing. That's exactly right. So we, uh, we've talked a lot, at least f uh, for this first component, uh, as it pertains to, um, you know, obviously preference and ability, spatial abilities, and people skills, and the impact that all three of those sort of subtopics have on the broader um, conversation around the gender gap and how they all impact the, the gender wage gap in different ways. Um, let's talk about, uh, you know, uh, the, the role that obviously discrimination plays because, you know, obviously as much as I'd like to, you know, learn about all the things that contribute to the gender wage gap, it's sort of unescapable that discrimination is a component of the reason for its existence and the sort of, uh, you know, I would assume one of the reasons that it still holds to, to this day, the actual gender wage gap. So, um, although uh, there are reasons that contribute to the wage gap that don't necessarily have to do with uh, discrimina discrimination, it does still exist. So what does some of the research indicate when it comes to how much of the gap is caused by discrimination on the basis of gender? Yeah, so it's actually uh, really hard to measure discrimination. Uh, we used to kind of measure it by thinking about, you know, if we took men and women who had the same education, were in the same occupation, worked the same number of hours, uh, what were their relative earnings? Uh, and we'd interpret kind of any difference in their relative earnings as discrimination. Uh, but more recently, we've been able to measure discrimination a bit more precisely. Uh, and the way we typically do that is, or the way economists typically do that, uh, is through uh, what we call resume or audit studies. Uh, where you'll do things like send out a thousand identical resumes, but you'll change the name from a man's name to a woman's name and see whether employers are more or less likely to call you back, for example. Uh, so, you know, this technique has also been used to measure discrimination by race, for example. Uh, so there's this uh, nice paper that does this by altering the names from traditionally black names to traditionally white names and shows that when you send out an identical resume with a black name on it, the callback rate drops by about 50%. Now, as it turns out, when you do this uh, just altering men and women's names, uh, in terms of the callback rate, you don't actually see a whole lot, right? So employers are no... More, more or less likely to call back a resume with a male name than they are to call back a resume with a female name. So at least along that dimension, there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, kind of overall discrimination against women. Now, of course, if we're interested in the gender wage gap, we're not just worrying about callback rates. We're also worrying about what happens when, you know, someone is hired and when they, you know, negotiate for their wages. Uh, and it's a little harder to say, you know, to kind of run that type of experiment uh, in that context. Now, there is one really nice study that I think is able to get at that question a little bit. And so in this study, what the researchers did was send out the resumes of undergraduate students uh, to science faculty. Uh, and they told these science faculty that this, these were students who were looking for jobs in labs, right? So these were in science. This is in the context of uh, science professors. Uh, and they said, you know, I have an undergrad student who's looking for a job in a lab. Would you mind taking a look at his or her resume and giving me some feedback on it, right? Tell me how uh, kind of competent you think this student 
burden is, tell me what you think a good starting salary for them would be, uh, these kinds of questions. And what they found is that when they switched the name on the resume from a male name to a female name, the suggested salary fell by about $5,000. Right, so for the male students, uh, the suggested salary was around $30,000, a little bit over, and for the female students, it was uh, a little under $26,000. Right, so that was a really huge difference, considering that these were identical students. Right, these students had, or, you know, these were just CVs that had had the names switched. So it seems like discrimination could potentially play a big role in in driving the wage gap. Uh, and I should also note that in that study, the professors also rated the female students as significantly less competent, right? They, they thought the, female, this, the resumes with the female names uh, seemed to be significantly less competent. Okay, so essentially, if, if in, in this particular study, just so I'm clear, when it came to uh, judging experience um, without, uh, without knowing if it was a, a man or a woman, then there was not very much difference in the, the sort of offerings between one resume versus another versus another. So there wasn't as much difference in opinion there. But when the sort of, uh, I guess, cultural and social biases that come into play when people make these sorts of decisions or when there's a sort of, um, when people fall into the trap of, uh, you know, uh, gender assignments or whatever the case may be, that's when their own sort of biases come into play and that's when they'll start to make decisions that are less favorable to women. Yeah, so these professors never saw a resume without a name on it. Oh, okay. um, but the reason that we know that they would have evaluated them identically without the names is because the resumes were actually identical, right? These were fake students that were made up. We just, you know, the researchers just took the exact same resume and put either a man or a woman's name on it. And that... Uh, the name that was on it significantly influenced how these professors perceived the resumes Got it. and okay. what they thought the, the, a reasonable starting salary for these students would be. And so you, just to stay on the sort of subject of, I guess, academia for a second, because one thing, obviously, you were just talking about professors and, and their sort of role in, um, in, in at least that study. So in academia, um, when it comes to, I guess, how women versus men are evaluated, uh, whether it's by their peers or by their students or whatever the case may be, is does sort of gender bias creep in there? Like, does that have an impact on their, obviously on their, the way they're perceived and their, by extension, their performance and by extension, their salary? Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's actually a lot of work documenting gender bias in academia, I think, uh, because female academics are sort of intrinsically concerned with this subject. Uh, so, you know, there's a recent paper uh, by Heather Sarsons, who um, was looking in the economics profession specifically. And what she did was she collected information uh, on the CVs of professors at the time that they came up for tenure and looked at the probability that they would get tenure based on things like how many publications they had uh, in different kinds of journals at the time. And what she showed is that female professors who co-authored with uh, male co-authors essentially received no credit for those papers, right? If you if you added a co-authored publication to a woman's CV, her chances of getting tenure did not increase at all, okay. uh, whereas that was not true for men. If you, in, if you added a co-authored publication to a man's CV, his chances of getting tenure did increase. Uh, and importantly, this effect was only true when it was a male-female co-authorship, right? If two women co-authored together, then they each did get credit for that paper. And so what that suggests is that when women co-author with men, the tenure committees assume that it was, you know, the man's idea or the man's work or that he contributed somehow more to that paper, um, and women get essentially no credit for, for that work at all. 
there's another paper that looks at student evaluations of teaching, right? So this is a work by uh, Anne Boring at uh, Sciences Po, which is a university in France. Uh, and what's nice about Sciences Po, about that setting, is that uh, students are, they all take the first same set of six classes in first year. Uh, and those classes all write, all sections of those classes write a common exam, but they may be taught by different professors, right? And so you can get a measure of how good a professor is at teaching by how well his or her pro students perform on that final exam that is common to all sections. And so what they were able to do was look at how student evaluations of teaching differed across men and women while controlling for any differences in actual teaching effectiveness. And what they showed is that male and female professors were equally effective, right? There was no difference in how well their students performed on this common final exam, but that male professors received significantly higher student uh, evaluations, right? And those evaluations were higher in particular along dimensions that are typically thought to be male-dominated, right? So in particular, uh, men were rated as having better leadership skills and uh, as being more knowledgeable. Oh, right? And so uh, yeah. these students, even though male instructors were no better at their jobs, right, when it came to imparting knowledge, uh, they perceived those professors very differently. Okay, so just so I'm clear, basically, you know, just, and this sort of refers back to the sort of gender biases that we all um, have the, uh, are vulnerable to fall into when it comes to the sort of social messages that are imparted on us and the cultural messages that are pushed on us, uh, you know, so basically, in this particular example, women who were uh, uh, being evaluated by their students were given a lower scoring on traits that are by and large considered to be quote-unquote male traits from whether it's leadership right. or knowledge that kind of thing yeah that's right when it comes to the um the actual i guess salaries or the sort of career outlook and how that type of discrimination impacts uh academics you know female academics in particular uh, has there been any sort of research or documentation on that other other than what you've already discussed? I mean, those are the two papers, you know, kind of two recent papers that I think do a particularly nice job of illustrating that subject. Right. Uh, but there is certainly a large literature uh, that attempts to look at, you know, to document discrimination in academia. Uh, I'm less clear on whether there is anything that looks at uh, how discrimination affects the wages of female academics. Okay. And I think that's simply because it's intrinsically difficult to measure. Right? We don't know exactly how much every female academic is making. Um, and discrimination itself is, you know, it's really difficult uh, to prove conclusively. And so you always, you know, these studies always end up taking advantage of special settings where it's easy to compare, you know, men and women doing the same job and look at their outcomes, uh, you know, who perform equally well and look at their outcomes. Uh, but you kind of have to, you're constrained by what the setting is and what the data can give you. Yeah, and and this also kind of ties back to what we were talking about a, a little bit earlier in the conversation regarding, um, you know, you mentioned the school uh, in Israel, and you mentioned how, uh, and even you mentioned the, the U.S., uh, um, the, the military uh, uh, example, where, you know, this type of... Uh, discrimination even at the sort of at, when it comes to educating young uh, girls in particular if they're sort of uh, discouraged from these subjects at a young age it can actually impact their performance in these subjects and their likelihood of getting into these careers later in life and thereby affecting the the wage gap and and sort of even on the reverse note having a sort of positive female role model or just a positive role model in general that isn't necessarily a victim of their you know sort of 
humanistic, sometimes vulnerable uh, nature to sort of assign gender roles, having a mentor like that can actually, you know, and, and having somebody who encourages that level of, of, of participation in those fields actually has can help uh, propel people into those fields and by extension impact their overall career projection and and their place and, and the economy and the overall uh, context of this conversation. So, uh, you know, it's obviously interesting how this all ties in together. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's not enough to, you know, like I said, we used to measure discrimination by looking at men and women who, you know, had made all the same choices and looking at how their wages differ. But that's not really a very good measure of discrimination because you have to think about why men and women are making different choices to begin with, right? And if those choices are influenced by discrimination at early stages in the life cycle, uh, you know, then that that kind of comparison is really going to understate the impact of discrimination on, on women's wages and well-being. Um, let's move on to an area that uh, I, I believe we, we touched on very briefly a little bit earlier in the conversation, and I said I wanted to come back to it. Um, when it comes to the role, I guess, of the, the, the sort of family responsibilities and the, um, the, the sort of dividing proportions of men versus women in terms of taking on responsibility in the, in the household, um, in your estimation, what, how does the traditional sort of family role, what are the sort of, you know, quote unquote, gender roles, um, how do those dynamics affect the overall wage gap as it pertains to family responsibilities? So family responsibilities seem to have a really big impact on the gender wage gap. You know, we know women are putting in more time than men are at home. Uh, that gap has been closing over time, but it's still quite substantial. Uh, so women spend uh, many more hours every week doing household chores and childcare uh, than men do. Uh, and so one way to measure the impact of that, uh, those household responsibilities on the wage gap is to look at what happens to women's wages around the time of the birth of their first child, right? And so the birth of a child is a time when uh, the amount of household responsibility uh, for a couple increases substantially. Uh, and we know that women tend to take on a disproportionate share of that burden uh, for both, you know, to some extent biological, but also social reasons. Uh, and so there is a paper that does exactly that, uh, that came out very recently in the NBER, uh, that basically took a sample, or took a 100% sample of Swedish women uh, and looked at their earnings using tax, re tax records uh, right around the birth of their first child, right? And so you just, uh, for each man and woman in the data, you plot out their earnings over time, kind of, and just draw a line at the time their first child was born. And what you see is that men's earnings are basically unaffected by the birth of the first child. They continue on the same trajectory that they were on before. Whereas for women, immediately following the birth of their first child, their wages drop by about 20% and they stay permanently lower, right? And so there seems to be a very large child penalty for women that is not present for men. Uh, and, you know, it seems like that is probably driven by women's increased uh, family responsibilities. The fact that women tend to take on a disproportionate share of things like childcare or being responsible uh, when things come up for, you know, leaving work and picking up the kids who are sick. Uh, women's increased tendency to do a lot of the kind of additional cooking and cleaning that comes with having kids, uh, all these sorts of things. Yeah. And I've even, you know, in my own research on this, um, I've looked up, you know, there's, there's obviously charts and graphs that um, sort of share uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but pretty much the sort of salary growth of men versus women. And then it sort of illustrates how, you know, after the birth of the first child, there's a sort of dip in the salary earnings of, of women and the sort of able, capability to earn because obviously they take time off. And then if there's a question of 
if, the, if, if basically it's one big game of catch up, uh, you know, after you take time off after your first child, then you pretty much, you know, as women are taking time off, men are still obviously growing in their respective experience level and in their, you know, competency level in their jobs. And, you know, they, they don't have to take a year off, which means they have that year to, you know, maybe earn their stripes and get promoted in their roles. Um, you know, so it's this, the whole conversation around time commitment. And this is something we actually referred to a little bit earlier in the conversation as well, how, you know, one big component of the, the wage gap is, you know, and even when it refers to the, the sort of 79 cents on the dollar uh, figure, a lot of it refers to um, the, the role that time consumption has in that and how, you know, I believe if I recall correctly, the reference we made is how one thing that the 79 cents on the dollar figure does not include is, you know, the, the, the hours work that is, I believe was one of the characteristics that was not included. But, um, yeah, when it comes to, you know, overall time commitment, um, what I, the, this illustration, this graph that I did see, it basically showed how after the first child, you know, like I said, the, the earnings drop a little bit, obviously, because the, the woman will take time off and then it starts to grow a little bit, but then it never is really able to catch up because not only are the men accelerating in their careers while the either whether it's their wives or whoever are taking time off, but, you know, when women get back into the workforce, they have to sort of adapt to what may very well be a completely different landscape of the workplace because if the industry has changed at all like for example in the tech industry if you lose if you're if you're out of the tech industry for six months you're already like way out of the game just because that's how quickly technology is changing not only in that industry but you know whether it's you know a, a number of different industries if you're out of the of the industry for x amount of months you're already sort of so far back behind. You have to spend so much time just even catching up to the level of where you would have been if you didn't take time off. And then you have to think about where you have to get to if you want to accelerate your career and move forward. And then, and then you know, another thing to keep in mind is, you know, a lot of families will have more than one child. So when that second child is born, the sort of graph will, will drop off again. And it's, you know, from a time consumption standpoint, this is a very big component of it where if, you know, you're not in the workplace to gain your experience or to, um, you know, gain the, 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 the networking opportunities and the career growth opportunities that you need to move forward, it's just one big game of catch up. And, you know, uh, the time consumption standpoint and the family responsibility standpoint has a huge role in that. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, I think you've identified, you know, kind of two sort of separate issues there. There's, first of all, the fact that when children are born, women do tend to take time off, right? It's a time where they're completely separated from their jobs, and that harms their labor market experience, you know, so that men of a similar age and similar profile will tend to have more experience uh, than similar women, and that, you know, it's very hard to catch up, as you mentioned. Uh, but then there's also the ongoing fact that children just create work for the household, and women end up doing a lot more work at home and therefore possibly cutting back at work a little bit, right? It's not that women are intrinsically not hardworking. If you add up the number of hours of work women do, considering both market work out of the home and work in the home, women work much more than men every week, right, on aggregate. But less of that occurs at the office, right? It's, a, you know, marginally less office, you know, work out of the home and much more work inside the home. And so, of course, that's going to make it even more difficult for women to catch up on this kind of experience that they've missed. 
Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, to this to, to the sort of point that we've been talking about the, you know, for, for at least this component of the conversation, you know, time consumption in the workplace. I mean, I, I see the dynamic changing a little bit and, and not necessarily that time consumption is not important anymore. But um, I, I see a lot of companies uh, trying to, I guess, enhance their corporate cultures by allowing more flexible time and, and by allowing more work from home options. Um, you know, obviously, it can't it can't take away from the fact that if like a woman is able to work from home oh that that means that they suddenly don't have to worry about the kids obviously if if they're taking time off uh you know to you know take care of their kids whether they're allowed to work and be productive in their jobs while they're at home with their kids or not you know even being able to work from home and still have the opportunities to um you know move forward in your careers in that sort of flexible situation there's still kids around in, in the house or that you you know have to keep one eye on while you're keeping one eye on your work if even if even if you are working from home so um yeah it's it's a very sort of it's it's a unique dynamic with that um you know the family role that definitely has when it comes to the gender wage gap yeah and i think it's you know i think there's only so far that flexibility is really going to help when it comes to the gender wage gap Right. I mean, flexibility is a wonderful thing. I think it really um, improves people's lives and their ability to manage families and work. But it can't just be women who are taking advantage of that flexibility or else, you know, employers are going to continue to value women less if women are the ones who have to, you know, keep working from home and, you know, take advantage of all these programs while men are able to work, you know, long, more traditional hours. Uh, This is an area where I really think it's less about what corporations are doing and more about what men are doing. Right. If if men really want to help the gender wage gap, then they need to step up and take more responsibility at home so that these burdens don't disproportionately fall on women. Got it. And, you know, just to sort of add to that, you know, when it comes to not necessarily men versus women, but the overall sort of gender roles that, you know, uh, we all have, may have at some point or another fallen victim to um, just, you know, just by the simple fact that we're all human and susceptible to, you know, all the messages that we're surrounded by every day. Um, when it comes to the sort of, uh, you know, traditional family role dynamic, um, have there been any sort of studies around, uh, you know, how efficient it is to gender assign different roles? Like, do people behave more? Uh, you know, are there any studies that show how, I guess, rational people behave when assigning roles without gender bias and then with gender bias? Yeah, I mean, that is a potential explanation for the traditional division of labor in the home, right? It's possible that people do this because it is the most efficient thing to do, right? That, you know, we know that specialization can be efficient. um, And so maybe it makes sense to have one partner who's out there, you know, really giving it in their career and one partner who steps back a bit at the office, but does more of the more of the home stuff, right? Maybe that's the way uh, to just, you know, maximize people couples well-being and I think that's certainly something that economists have considered Uh, there is actually a really interesting experimental paper that's come out recently uh, by some economists who have attempted to to test precisely that proposition right and so what that study did was they brought real-life couples into the lab uh, and they looked at whether couples were able to efficiently divide tasks between them Right? And in sort of the control condition, they asked couples to complete this set of tasks that were gender neutral. Right? So they had two tasks. One was, I think, stuffing envelopes, and the other was filling out forms. Right? And so they got uh, both partners in the couple to try out both tasks so that they could figure out who was better at what. 
they also asked the couple, each member of the couple, how much they liked each task, so that they could look at whether this was, you know, any differences were driven by uh, by preferences for particular tasks. Uh, and then they got the couple to try to complete as much of the task as they could in a short period of time, uh, and looked at how, whether they divided up the labor efficiently. Uh, and so, in that kind of gender-neutral situation, uh, couples basically were able to do it uh, efficiently. I mean, they definitely made some mistakes, but usually uh, partners did, you know, either what they were best at or what they were most highly rewarded for, um, according to the experimental conditions. Uh, then what the authors did was they changed the tasks to be more gendered, right? So now instead of stuffing envelopes or filling out forms, they got the participants to either sort socks or install brackets on the wall, metal brackets. Uh, and again, they had the couple, um, you know, try these tasks out before to see what they were best at. Uh, and as it turns out, uh, well, so first of all, women were better at all four tasks, uh, all four of these tasks than men. Uh, but the relative difference wasn't any bigger in the gendered condition than it was in the non-gendered condition, right? So it wasn't like men were just really good at installing brackets and women were really good at folding socks. Uh, women were better at both tasks. Um, in a relative sense, they were slightly better at folding the socks, but no more than when it came to the uh, envelopes and forms situation. But when you put them into the lab and ask them to divide the tasks, uh, the couples became actually less efficient in how they divided the labor, right? Women became more likely to fold the socks, even when that wasn't the task that they should have been doing, and men became more likely to put the brackets on the walls, even when it wasn't efficient for them to be doing that. And so just by uh, introducing these gender norms into the environment, you got couples to substantially change their behavior, right? And that's important because if this really was just about trying to be efficient, then performance should have been the same in both of those sets of tasks, right? In both of those sets of tasks, couples should have just divided the tasks efficiently. But as it turns out, once you introduce those gender norms, uh, couples will actually deviate further from the efficient solution, right? And so this suggests that these, these kind of norms are playing a role in how we divide tasks in the household. Yeah, and I think, you know, even even a study like that, that, that first of all, that's extremely interesting how, like, when you... Uh, when you ask couples to, you know, uh, categorize roles or to assign roles, you know, when there's no gender bias involved, they will act in their uh, with the utmost efficiency usually. But when you start to uh, prey on their uh, sort of tendency to be gender bias, when you introduce the gender bias into the decisions and ask them to assign roles that are typically more gender gender assigned, then people will act almost inefficiently and they won't act in their in the overall entity's best interest because you know that again they sort of have that social and cultural influence that has that uh, i guess uh, gender bias uh, that influences their decision but in but in that case that second test that you mentioned regarding you know socks and, and the handles on the wall because you know they they had that sort of gender bias in assigning those roles, which typically have more of a gender bias, they actually acted more inefficiently. So, you know, essentially gender discrimination, from what I can tell, at least, it causes people to not act in the best interest of their, of maybe their own household. But obviously, if we look at the overall impact that it has on the gender wage gap at a higher level, even, and when I say higher level, I mean, you know, the level of organizations and corporations, when it comes to not not to say that you know they'll be assigning roles that are necessarily gender bias in say an accounting firm or in a consulting firm or in a you know an agency or whatever but 
if there is that sort of gender discrimination or that gender bias that comes into play when organizations are making big decisions, they actually may have a tendency to act against their best interest and they might be acting inefficiently because of their gender biases. Does that, does that sort of make sense to you? Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. I mean, I haven't, this is a brand new study, so I haven't really seen this applied in the corporate context at all, but certainly it suggests that, you know, we're not just allocating tasks in the exact appropriate way, right, in any of these conditions. We're not looking at who's better at what and making sure that everybody's doing the thing that is their comparative advantage. Uh, You know, the gender norms don't simply reflect that kind of of thinking, that they are influenced uh, by factors that go beyond efficiency. Got it. Yeah. And so one sort of final broad overarching question that I just to give you an opportunity, if you wanted to add anything um, about whether it's the gender wage gap or the overall repercussions of it, when it comes to the overall wage gap in um, in society, within the context of economies, whatever the case may be, what is is there any sort of study or is there anything that you, you can you'd like to reference that? sort of speaks to how the gender wage gap actually impacts economies either at home or abroad? I mean, I don't know. I think it's a really difficult question to answer, you know, to say what is the counterfactual if, you know, women earned as much as men, what would the, you know, how what would growth look like in that case? What would the overall economy, how would it change in that case? Um, I think that's just a, a really difficult question to answer. Uh, there is one line of research that I think is potentially suggestive uh, about that question, uh, which comes from uh, the development economics literature, where they look at what happens when you give women more power in the household to decide how resources are allocated, right? So a lot of the time, these are studies where they go in and give, uh, say, some aid money, but they give it to women and tell them that they are allowed to decide how it uh, how it gets Uh, divided. And what you see is that when women have more power, they choose different things than men choose, right? And in particular, they choose a higher level of investment in things like child education, uh, in health, right? Uh, And those things, of course, are, you know, we think very good, both for just general well-being, but also for long-run growth, right? When you invest in kids, when you invest in their education, when you invest in the the health of all household members, uh, people are able to be more productive later on. And so if, you know, we were to live in this hypothetical society where women were treated equally to men, where they had as you know, as many financial resources where they were, they had more power to decide uh, to make decisions in the household. Uh, You know, I think it is entirely possible that they might choose things that are more efficient in the long run, right? At least that's what I would, that's how I would read that literature from development economics. Yeah. And, and, and hopefully there will be sort of more literature that comes out, you know, in regards to the overall economic impact that these sorts of things do have on the economy because you know in when it comes to understanding the wage gap and understanding why it exists you know that's one thing obviously and that's what we've spent a lot of time talking about but i guess the sort of next step you know moving forward for people to to sort of consider is if the wage gap persists and if it exists the way it does what is the overall impact that it will have not only on you know home markets at home but you know emerging markets or foreign markets what is the overall uh, i guess global impact that um, it, uh, it it will have on you know whether uh, it refers to organizations ability or capabilities to to grow or you know the overall capability of economies to grow and and the sort of you know that in and of itself opens up a whole you know different door of um, you know topics to discuss in terms of you know if 
you know, to your point, if resources are being allocated, you know, are, you know, more responsibly or, or more efficiently or, or whatever the case may be, if men and women are, are allocating resources, um, at least according to the literature, um, differently, what is the overall impact that it can have on an organization, whether it's a company or a, or an, or a national economy or, or, you know, a regional economy, whatever the case may be. So um, it, it, one, one sort of, I guess, related question, I don't know if there's any literature done on this, but what are so you, one thing you mentioned is how you know one of the things that uh, women who have more um, ability to allocate resources they'll spend it on child childhood uh, education that kind of thing uh, what are, are do you have any other differences that um, men will sort of invest in versus women uh, so I believe what that comes out of is uh, when men are given money they're much more likely to spend it on uh, consumer goods I think that that's that's the difference um, so, you know, they basically men, when given that money, are much more likely to spend it on immediate consumption, whereas women are the ones who are um, driving things that you might think of as being more investments. Got it. And yeah, and that sort of comes to you, what we were talking about a little bit earlier, you know, the cultural and social norms and what, you know, we are told to sort of prioritize and, and what we prioritize as men and women based on those sort of cultural norms and those sort of uh, social and cultural expectations that, that are placed on us by, you know, the any number of things that we're surrounded by every day from, you know, messages to, you know, the what the internet tells us to what, you know, uh, pop culture tells us or whatever the case may be. So even when it comes to as we think about this conversation moving forward and what um, what the overall impact of the gender wage gap has on the sort of rise and fall of economies, um, you know, that's certainly something that that'll have to be considered as, as we move forward. But um, so, yeah, I mean, we, uh, Kirsten, we've talked a lot today uh, about, you know, all of the sort of nuances around, you know, the, uh, the economics of the gender wage gap, the f- setting the foundation of it, why it exists, um, the sort of factors that contribute to it, um, the social and cultural norms that contribute to it, the efficiency level of um, organizations or, 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 or human beings as they sort of, you know, the, the impact that gender uh, bias has on, on an organization or an individual's level of, of efficiency. Obviously, this is a huge topic, and um, it's never. I, I know I understand that people have a tendency to want these sort of subjects to be simplified, and and you know they. There's always. I think we as people will always you know uh, desire to have one very simple answer to all of these sorts of big, difficult, intricate topics, and it's just impossible. And there's probably, you know, hours and hours of content that we haven't even covered today that also contributes to this if we look at it from a number of other different perspectives other than obviously, um, you know, economics and that kind of thing. So um, this is obviously a huge conversation, and I can only see it becoming more and more researched and more and more um, uh, put into, you know, literature. And, and, and um, obviously today we, we had a, a great conversation around a lot of the nuances, but um, there's definitely a lot still uh, out there that, uh, that people should definitely investigate. Um, but uh, in the meantime, though, uh, I appreciate you jumping on the, uh, the podcast today. Um, you've had some really great insights and, um, yeah, if it's been, uh, you know, you've had a lot of interesting things to, to bring to people's attention and hopefully, you know, people will, um, hopefully we'll be able to see some of some repercussions in the gender wage gap moving forward as people do more research on it and as people, you know, conduct more, uh, literature on it. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the discussion. Absolutely. Thanks, Kirsten. 
Well, there you have it, folks. As uh, you can probably tell from the conversation, the, the gender wage gap is a very, very big topic, and it's extremely complicated, and there's a lot of moving parts to it. The way we define the gender wage gap is complicated. The socio-political and economic trends that shape the way we make decisions that in turn impact how we choose careers is a huge component of it. And the way the wage gap actually varies from potentially one industry th to the next is a huge component as well. This is a very hot topic, and chances are it's not going to be going away anytime soon. And there are probably plenty of important questions that I just didn't think to ask in the middle of this conversation. Um, but feel free to leave a comment and let me know what your thoughts are on the recording. And if there is anything that I may have missed that you think should have been included, as usual, pardon my ignorance. 